If you have a copy of God's Word, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 13. We've been working our way through the life of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. And just before the passage that we're going to look at today, uh, Jesus heals a woman who had been disabled for 18 years. She had been bent over uh, with disability, no doubt, in pain. Uh, and Jesus heals her body. And this is not the first time we've seen it, but as usual, uh, it prompts a bit of a firestorm. Uh, you need to notice about Jesus as he goes through life that he makes plenty of waves. Uh, he is not this mild-mannered, um, easygoing guy who never upsets the apple cart. In fact, it often looks as if Jesus is intentionally upsetting the apple cart. Uh, and so he heals this woman, and the religious leaders, again, get mad at him for doing so on the Sabbath. And, Je- and Jesus again silences them, tells them where they're wrong. And it says just before this uh, in Luke thirteen seventeen that as that all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were being done by him. And so the people are loving Jesus. Uh, they're loving him. Uh, they're loving what they're seeing from him. They're loving what they're hearing from him. It, it gives them hope that a new day is dawning, a day that they've been waiting on for a long time. And so what Jesus does is then he takes this opportunity to talk about that day, to talk about this new day that they've been looking for, to talk about what's called the kingdom of God. And so if you would join me as I read Luke 18, excuse me, Luke 13, 18 through 30. If you're using, uh, if you don't have your own Bible, if you want to grab that one there in the chair, we're on page 873. Jesus said, therefore, what's the kingdom of God like? To what shall I compare it? It's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you come from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. 
And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. This is God's Word, and He has given it for our benefit. So let's ask for His help in applying it to our lives. Let's pray. Lord, again, stark words and stark warning from Jesus And it makes us uncomfortable, or at least it ought to. Lord Jesus, that's why you spoke them. So I pray that it would, I pray that your word would hit us in exactly the right way. And that we would hear, that we would heed the warning, and that we would run to you. Lord, would you, would you work your word in our hearts so that we would believe and be saved. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The kingdom of God is something that Jesus talks about a lot. And yet, it's not something that the Bible ever explains in one particular place. There's not like a verse in Second Opinions where you're going to find it saying, the kingdom of God is blank. Um, and so... When Jesus says, when Jesus comes on the stage and he's talking about the kingdom of God, uh, we need to do a little bit of work first so we can understand what it is that Jesus is saying. So we're going to look at three questions this morning. What exactly is the kingdom of God? Uh, What is it like? Or you could phrase that second one, how does it grow? Because that's what Jesus talks about. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God like? And then maybe most importantly, how do I enter it? How do I get in to the kingdom? Let's look at this first question again. There's no uh, place, there's no one place in scripture where the Bible defines the kingdom. And so what we have to do to, to get at this answer is we actually have to step back and look at the Bible as a whole. We need to look at the Bible story as a whole. Uh, one resource that I would recommend to you is uh, is this book. Um, it's a it's a condensed version of a much uh, of a much longer book. It's called God's Big Picture, and it is written by a man named Vaughn Roberts. Um, you can have my copy if you get up here first after the service. All right, uh, but this is a great book for helping you understand uh, the the larger story of Scripture. Uh, but here's how here's how Vaughn defines the kingdom. He says it is God's rule over God's people in God's place. God's rule over God's people in God's place. Another way to say it is the kingdom is wherever God is known and worshipped as king. So when people acknowledge and worship and follow God as king, that is where the kingdom uh, that is where the kingdom comes. And you could actually argue that the kingdom is the unfolding story of the whole Bible. From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And we did this actually in great detail back in January. But we're going we're gonna to do it again. I'm going to do it right now uh, very quickly. We actually see the kingdom develop over four phases or four acts through the story uh, of Scripture. That first phase, the first act, is creation. 
And there we see that Adam and Eve are God's kingdom representatives. They are given the task of God, of spreading God's kingly rule all throughout creation. But then we very quickly get to act two. What do Adam and Eve do? They rebel against God's kingly rule. And so while they retain the image of God in them and the abilities that comes with that, the abilities that come with that, they choose to set themselves up instead as king. So they reject God as king and choose themselves to rule and to reign. And it is that sinful nature that has tainted us and the entire creation ever since. Where we, where we choose to consistently worship God's substitutes, mainly ourselves, instead of God. And even when God rescues and names new people to be His representatives, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their offspring, Moses, David, the people of Israel, God names them, redeems them, calls them His new representatives. That same sinful nature taints them as well. Even they rebel against the king. And so God sends these messengers called prophets. And what they tell his people is that even though they've continued to live like Adam, God is going to send a new king. Someone who will undo what Adam has done and make right and restore God's kingdom. Which leads us then to the third phase. Creation, fall, redemption. This man Jesus shows up about 400 years after the close of the Old Testament. About 400 years after the last prophet has spoken, this guy Jesus shows up and he says something crazy. He said, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus shows up and it's very clear uh, that, uh, that he sees himself as the one who brings the kingdom. He sees himself as the king who fulfills all that the prophets had spoken. And all of the, the healings and all of the exorcisms and all of the miracles are demonstrations of that reality. That God has invaded history. God has invaded history to rescue lost humanity. He has the power. Jesus is the kingdom bringer. He has the power to restore what sin has broken. But this is where things take a kind of interesting twist. Because you would expect that somebody with that kind of power and that kind of authority would just, boom, make it right. Ride in on the white horse and, and, and make all of his enemies bow before his knees, right? Bow on their knees before him, right? That, that that's the kind of king we're looking for. But actually, Jesus displays his authority. He brings the kingdom by sacrificing himself. This kingdom is kind of upside down from what we would expect. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. And there's a final phase, creation... Fall, redemption, and restoration. That there's still a future aspect to the kingdom. That, that, that Jesus will return. And, 
at that point, God's people will finally be vindicated and all of Jesus' enemies will finally be put down. Death is done away with. Sin is done away with. No more rebellion. That is what will happen when the kingdom finally and fully comes. And so we live in kind of an interesting... We're in, we're in part three right now. And we live in kind of an interesting in-between. Because the kingdom has come already, but it is not yet fully here. And so we live in what uh, scholars call the already and the not yet. Jesus has come once, and we are waiting on His return. And so the kingdom is growing now, but it is not fully and finally realized. So what? Why does, uh, why does all of that matter on a Thursday afternoon? Why does all that matter uh, when you hate your boss? Why does all that matter when, uh, when nothing seems to be going right? Well, I want you to notice that in this kingdom story, all of life's major questions are answered. That this story actually pulls the strings of your individual story. And this comes right out of the book Everyday Church by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. Creation. Who are you? Who are you meant to be? Questions like, what do you assume the world should be like? What kind of person would you like to be? What would you have to, what would have to be in place for you to finally be happy? Those are creation questions. Fall. What's wrong with me and with the world? How would you describe your struggles? How do you, what, what do you think is your most pressing problem? What do you feel that you lack? Who or what? do you think is responsible? Those are fall questions. Redemption. What needs to happen for things to be made right? What do you think will make life better? What provides a sense of escape or release? Who or what will bring that hope to you? What are your functional saviors? Those are redemption questions. And then finally, restoration. What will give us meaning? What will give me meaning or satisfaction? What are your hopes? What are the dreams uh, for which you make sacrifices? Or have you simply given up hope so that you're simply getting through the day? See, that creation, fall, redemption, restoration plucks the strings of your life, does it not? That your story is found in that story. And if you profess to be a Christian, then this is your story. You are a glorious ruin whom God has broken into history to redeem so that you can proclaim His excellence to the nations. That's your story. A glorious ruin rescued by God to declare His excellence in the world. That's your story, if you're a Christian. And that means that God's priorities should now shape our priorities. How God has treated me changes how I treat others. Which leads us to kind of a sub-question under this, what is the kingdom question, and it's this. 
Is the kingdom the same as the church? And the answer to that, the short answer anyway, is no. They are not the same. They are different, but they are related. And I like to put it this way, that that the church is an outpost or an embassy of God's kingdom. And you've probably heard me say this before, that, that the church exists as an embassy of God's kingdom on foreign soil. If you've ever been abroad uh, to another country and had to go to an embassy, um, we did this in China, and the most bizarre thing happens when you walk through the gates of an embassy. You actually leave foreign soil and come onto American soil. And the same would be true if you go into the German embassy. So let's say you, you're in China and you go to visit the German embassy. Technically, when you walk through the gates of the German embassy, you are now in Germany. Now, geographically, you're still in China, but legally, you're still in Germany. But, as we saw uh, in Vietnam, that embassy only holds uh, for as long as the government holds, right? That there is hosti- there can be hostility. We've seen that in other places too. There can be hostility to foreign embassies. So the, the church is an embassy of God's kingdom. And here's what that means. Uh, two things that that means. Uh, first, kingdom community. That's what the church is. The church is a kingdom community. That means God, the, the church does not create the kingdom. The church does not build the kingdom. Rather, the kingdom creates the church. God's kingdom creates the church. The church is a gathering. That's actually what the word New Te- the, the New Testament word for church means. It simply means gathering or assembly. Okay, and so the church is a gathering or community of people who are ruled by God. We trust in Jesus. We're waiting for His return. We have His Holy Spirit working in us so that we're growing in our likeness to Jesus. And that means that we're a people of two worlds. That we exist, we are in the kingdom. We are in Jesus, we're in the kingdom. But we also exist in the world. We live in our families and in our cultures and in our nations. God doesn't do away with those, at least not in the here and now. But His kingdom does supersede those. That our loyalty to Jesus supersedes our loyalty to family, our loyalty to culture, and our loyalty to our nation. Because all of those things will eventually go away. But Jesus and His kingdom will last forever. And so they have our highest priority. We live in this world as citizens of the next. We live in this world as citizens of the next. Which then leads to kingdom mission. That our mission, that the church exists to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So the king, God's kingdom creates the church so that the church will proclaim the good news of the kingdom. That we as a church exist to take the good news of what Jesus has done into the world in which we live. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to be a missionary to Bangladesh. But it does mean that if you're a Christian, that you ought to locate yourself in those two things, community and mission. 
That you, that if you are a part of the church, that, that you have a role to fill, fulfill in the kingdom community. And you have a role to fulfill in kingdom mission. And those priorities ought to be before us all the time. Which, if you think about it, explains why the New Testament talks about uh, all the different ethics that it does, the ways that we live. When, when Paul, for instance, tells a couple of different churches to not live in animosity and bitterness and ill will towards one another. Why? Why does he tell us that? What does that have to do with anything? Because that's not fitting in the kingdom. Because the king, the king has come and ransomed and redeemed us and forgiven us. Therefore, we now live out of that to others who are in the community with us. Right? We are a kingdom community on a kingdom mission. Now, that's the big picture. That's the big picture of God's kingdom. Now let's look at what Jesus says in this passage to answer that next question. What is the kingdom of God like? Uh, so, in the passage just before this, Jesus heal, heals a disabled woman, uh, and he begins talking about God's kingdom. The people are responding favorably to him. They're, they're perceiving that the day has arrived. Finally, the Messiah is here. And they're right, but only to a point. And here's, here's where uh, they're beginning to get confused. The Jewish expectation was that the kingdom would come suddenly. Right away in a moment that God would appear in history and that he would vindicate his people, mostly the Jews, and he would punish his enemies, mostly the Gentiles. And so Jesus corrects that misunderstanding. That it not only is it not going to happen in a moment, but actually that it's going to slowly develop over time. And it was confusing to them because here Jesus was declaring the kingdom and showing the kingdom, but nothing about him looked very much like a king. He was a carpenter from a poor part of the country in an out-of-the-way part of the world. Nobody ever started a kingdom from Galilee. Right? That, that nothing about Jesus... I mean, he's even, he's even being opposed and rejected by religious, uh, religious authorities. Clearly, this guy isn't a king. He doesn't even have the support of the people in power. This isn't the Messiah. And that's where Jesus has to come in and correct our thinking and our misunderstanding. And here's Jesus' point, that though the kingdom may appear small and insignificant now, it will grow to fill the entire earth. And he tells two parables to make this point. First, the parable of the mustard seed... Verse 19 of chapter 13, it's like a grain, the kingdom's like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nest in its branches. What's the point? The kingdom begins small, starts tiny, but grows large enough to provide shelter and rest. The birds of the air are uh, usually a picture from the Old Testament of the nations. So this, this garden plant, you couldn't even rightly probably call the mustard plant a tree. Uh, but it starts as a small seed and it grows uh, and it's able to provide shelter and rest to the nations. And again, that, 
picture would have been unexpected. Uh, an Israelite, a Jew, would have, would have looked for the cedar or the oak, right? These strong, towering trees. But Jesus says, your expectations are wrong. You're looking for the wrong sorts of things. And then he tells uh, the parable of the leaven or the yeast. That the kingdom is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Three measures of flour would be over 50 pounds of flour. It's a lot of flour. And Jesus' point, right, is that even a small amount of invisible yeast works through and permeates over 50 pounds of flour. In fact, I'm no baker of bread, but um, when you initially do this, you can't even really tell that the yeast is working. In fact, what it looks like is that the, the yeast actually gets engulfed by the flour. It disappears. You can't see it. It doesn't, it doesn't appear to be doing anything. And yet over time, it works through the whole lump. And in the same way, God's kingdom has humble beginnings and often works imperceivably. But Jesus says its growth is inevitable. It will happen. Now, what does that have to do with us? Well, we're American. We love big. We love flashy. We know we want it now, right? Uh, the bigger, the better. The sooner, the better. The better the production level, right? I mean, we're we're moved by stadiums and auditoriums full of people with perf- perfect productions. We see all of that show and we say, now that's the Holy Spirit at work. That's where God is. In the excitement. And while God certainly can work in those environments, those things are not indicative of the kingdom. God's kingdom growth often comes slowly, uh, unimpressively, but it is inevitable. It will happen. Now, on the flip side of that, we shouldn't use that as an excuse for, you know, small, cold gatherings, right? Like, we hate numbers, let's stay right here, right? Uh, that's, that's, remember that the kingdom grows, right? It, it fills the earth. Uh, and so, you know, we, we don't want to, we don't want to use this as an excuse to not grow, to not spread, to not go deep. But the, the point that Jesus is making, even to his own hearers, is don't trust in something because it looks exciting. How exciting something looks, how big it appears, that's not the kingdom. Rather, trust in the God who will bring and grow his kingdom. Which then leads us to the third question. This is the kingdom. How do I enter it? How do I get into this kingdom? As Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, someone in the crowd says, Will those who are saved be few? And let's, uh, let's put our, our southern church-going assumption aside for, for just a minute so that we can understand what exactly this man is asking, right? When, uh, at least if you grew up in the south in church, when you hear the word saved, it means my sins are forgiven and I'm going to heaven to be forever with Jesus. And, and that's true, but it's, uh, it's, it's part 
of the truth, right? That's, that's not really how a first century Jew would have understood the word saved. Um, for him, to be saved would mean to enter God's kingdom, to enjoy God's presence, to enjoy his favor and not his judgment, to be in and not out. So that what this man is asking is, Lord, just about how many folks are going to be in? Is it going to be a little? Is it going to be a lot? And Jesus, in his characteristic way, doesn't answer the question directly, right? But he, he almost says, you're really asking the wrong question. You don't need to be worried about who, how many are going to be in. You need to be worried about whether you're going to be in. Right? So don't be asking about how many people will be in. Ask yourself, am I going to be in? That's what you need to ask. And Jesus says this in verse 24. He says, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive. Labor hard. It's actually where we get our word agony from. Jesus says, Labor to enter through the narrow door. Now, this is not uh, salvation by works. Jesus is not saying, work really hard to prove yourself to God. Rather, what he's telling this man, what he's telling us, is that there's a necessary mindset uh, of those who want to enter. That we want to listen and respond to Jesus' message. That's what it means to strive to enter uh, the narrow door. That we actually listen to Jesus. Uh, a brother, I didn't ask his permission, so I won't uh, say who it was, but a brother in Sunday school uh, put it this way. He said, I examine myself and, and see I'm not where I want to be. Right? I, I look at my standing with Jesus. I'm not yet the person that I want to be and I long for more. Or we could take Paul's explanation in Philippians 3 where he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He goes on, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I already have obtained this or am already perfect, but here you go. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me His own. That's striving to enter by the narrow door. Paul knows Jesus has already made him his own. Jesus has secured the beachhead. He's defeated the enemy. The goal line is established. Now, by His grace, we just get to strive towards that point. It's the, it's the old illustration that, uh, that people would use of World War II. That, that D-Day, because D-Day happened... Uh, that, that once we were able to get onto the beaches, once, once allied forces were able to get into Europe, it was only a matter of time before uh, Nazi Germany fell, right? That, that the enemy was defeated, it was simply a matter of time. That's what Paul is saying, and that's what it means to strive, to enter the kingdom, right? To, to come to Jesus and say, I'm not where I want to be yet, uh, but I'm... I'm striving. 
And Jesus contrasts that with, uh, with those who wait until it's too late. The master gets up and shuts the door, and then all of a sudden people rush the house, right? It's time for the banquet, it's time for the marriage supper, the, the, the feast. And people rush the door, but it's shut, it's bolted. And the master says, I don't know where you come from, I don't know who you are. And they say, well, yeah, you do. We, we had a meal with you, right? We ate and we drank and uh, we heard you talk in the street. We listened to you some. You know us. And Jesus says, no, no, I don't. Jesus is saying that the opportunity to enter will not last forever. There will come a day when the door is shut and there is no way in. Sim- simply being acquainted with Jesus, uh, just listening to His Word, being in His presence, does not mean you are in the kingdom. In fact, Jesus says, many who think that they are in, like the Pharisees, will be surprised on that day when they are out. Many who think that they are first will indeed be last. And many who think that they are last will indeed be first because Jesus brings a great reversal. And so it's possible that you're baptized, listening to sermons, uh, taking communion, serving the church in some leadership capacity. It's possible to be doing all of those things and to be merely acquainted with Jesus, but not actually in the kingdom. You may be acquainted with Jesus, but you're not actually trusting and listening to Jesus, heeding His Word. Which is exactly why Jesus laments over Jerusalem in the very next passage. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Jesus says, the time is coming when the offer of peace is removed from the table. Listen to me now. Hear me now. So what does it mean to enter the narrow door? What does it mean to listen to Jesus' words? To strive. Luke gives us a good picture back in chapter 5, verse 30. He says, The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, him, answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. To enter the narrow door means to trust and follow Jesus. To not just be around Him, but to desire with all every fiber of your being to be with Him. To have Him as your own. To see your need and claim Him as your only Hope, repent, and believe in the good news of Jesus. Let's pray.
Our gracious God, if anything I have said this morning leads someone to believe that they must work their way to you, I pray that you would disabuse them of the notion. God, that in one sense to strive is to finally rest. As Robert Murray McShane said, to lay our deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and rest in Him alone, perfectly complete. God, I pray we would hear the warning that the door is not open forever. That there is a narrow door and His name is Jesus. And everyone who believes in Him will enter the kingdom. And that everyone who does not will be left outside where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, I pray we would heed the warning and be rescued. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's worship God together through the giving of our gifts. I do want to point out one quote uh, in the bulletin uh, by a man named Randy 